Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show was presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at a state dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Millie Bombush and Craig Frankel, and we're talking about Georgia's new power of attorney law. What does it mean for you? And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today Blake Melton, Senior Wealth Strategist at Synovus Family Asset Management, and Sarah Watchko, a partner at the law firm of Hill & Watchko. I'd like to start by asking each of you just to give us a brief overview of who you are and what you do. We'll start with you, Blake. Okay, I'm an attorney and I work in the family office at Synovus. We work with ultra high net worth families and provide comprehensive planning, investment, and related services. And Sarah? I am also an attorney in a boutique law practice in Alpharetta, Georgia. Our practice areas include estate planning, elder law, long-term care planning, guardianship and conservatorship, and other fiduciary services. So we are here today to talk about uh, Georgia's new power of attorney law. And so let's start with the basics. What is a power of attorney? No, no, no. Before we start with the basics, I want to know what ultra high net worth means. (laughs) Normally, the families we work with are, are, are $20 million and up. Um, and I think everybody's definition varies a little bit. That so, sounds pretty ultra to me. Okay, so so, so pardon the, the the humor about it, but what we're going to talk about today, powers of attorney, they do apply to ultra high net worth people, which I would consider to be the lower class. Um, I'm being funny, but <laughs> the but but the powers of attorney are going to be true whether you have a lot of money or even a little of money, right? Yes. Okay. Now answer Millie's question. <laughs> what is a power of attorney? Really, it is an instrument that gives the, the principal would be the one executing the power of attorney, and they would give to the agent a power to do things on their behalf. So the agent could go out and perform actions, it signed documents it, as if they were the principal. A lot of people say, is it like, it's like standing in the shoes? Is that what you use? Yes. I mean, I think that's inaccurate. I say that often. I say it's like giving someone a set of keys to your financial house. You keep your set of keys for yourself, but you give someone else access. Are there different types of powers of attorney, some for finances, some for health, some for other things, or are they all kind of the same thing? There are. There are two separate documents we use. The Advanced Directive for Healthcare is the name of the document in Georgia where you can grant someone the ability to make healthcare decisions for you. A financial power of attorney pretty much covers everything else, or at least it can. And I think that's an important point. I think people think about financial powers of attorney as those are my stocks and bonds or my investments, but really that power of attorney can cover pretty much everything beyond healthcare. Sell your house, move your car. Call Georgia Power, DeKalb County and dispute your water bill for you. Anyway, represent you, I mean, make decisions regarding litigation and other things that you don't necessarily think of as as financial. Sign contracts. We've heard some terminology, Blake. I think you used the term principal. Um, there are two different terms, principal and agent, with regard to powers of attorney. What do they mean? That's right. The principal would be the person granting the powers, um, the authority, and the agent would be the one that could act on behalf of or stand in the shoes of the principal. Okay. And, and, the, and the, the New Georgia Act uses the word agent, but a lot of historical powers of attorney use different words. What other different words kind of step into the shoes of, using that terrible pun, uh, of the agent? 
Attorney, in fact, is another term that we see commonly. So you can act as someone's attorney, in fact. And we see that in documents a lot. And I highlight that because that's what I see a lot. And I, it always makes me think of that, it's, that you're hiring an attorney and you're not. Mm-hmm. And there's another pair of words um, that we see often in the power of attorney world, uh, springing and durable. What do, what do those words mean? A springing power of attorney is one that by its terms is not effective unless the principal, the person who created it, is incapacity, is incapacitated, lacks the ability, is disabled, lacks the ability to handle their own things versus an immediate power of attorney that you can use immediately after it's signed. Are there, are there advantages to having a springing power of attorney versus a durable or, or the disadvantages? I mean, why would you want one versus the other? A lot of a lot of people we meet with in our office are concerned about an immediate power of attorney. They say, I'm not I'm not really comfortable giving this person this access right now. I don't want them to have that unless I'm disabled. But when you stop and think about it, we say, well, if you don't want them to have the access now, do you really want them to have it when you're disabled, when you don't know what's going on? Um, Another problem that we see with a springing power of attorney is that a bank or financial institution may be less likely to accept it. Is that that, that a problem you're seeing, Blake? Uh, I think it's it's part of a, a bigger issue. Is you have to determine incapacity. So I think what that really means is if you know if my dad grants me a power of attorney and it's springing upon his incapacity, then at some point we have to take my father to a physician or, or get somebody to pronounce that he's incapacitated, and that's a difficult thing. I mean, not only to, to try to tell my father he's incapacitated and can't handle his own affairs anymore. But for all of the family to, to sort of affirmatively say to each other and recognize that, hey, dad's incapacitated. So generally, we recommend against those. I understand the allure of them as a principal saying, well, I, I know they can't use it until I'm incapacitated. But the, the, the determining incapacity and the, the, turning, the, the turning of it on is, is difficult. It's a big and, problem. And sometimes yes. there's a, a time lag. I mean, there may be, for whatever reason, a, a transaction or something that has to be completed and this power of attorney is springing, and then you've got to go through the process of figuring out what is going to trigger it and how long it's going to take to determine incapacity. You know, you, you now could be late and not be able to get that transaction completed in time. Right. So and it would only be, that's another issue. Yes, and it would only be triggered upon incapacity. That wouldn't be um, you're in Africa for three months and, and, and something happens and somebody needs to act on your behalf. I mean, you're not, I, I don't think that would normally meet the definition of incapacity under a power. so But you could then, in that kind of circumstance, do a special power, a limited power of attorney that says, I'm in Africa for now. Here's what you can do. Correct. Okay. I, I do want to give everyone a warning, and we're going to talk about ways to protect. But one of the ways powers of attorney sometimes have problems is when you're, when you're getting a divorce. And it's not when you're getting a divorce. It's when one of the spouses decides that you're getting a divorce and just doesn't quite tell the other. So you have a lot of powers, and so you need to be thinking both the lawyer and, and, and the principal and agent when you're giving powers, are there some protections or things that you should do to kind of make, th- make sure things are going or copacetic? And we'll talk about those later, but I do want to warn because I'm seeing that more and more as people come to us after powers of attorney have been used. We've been talking about, um, you mentioned your, your dad um, possibly giving you a power of attorney, Blake, and we've talked about people with incapacity. Is, is this something that's a uh, power of attorney? Is that an important document for someone who's of the millennial age, or is it just really for our more senior citizen? 
it's important for anyone over the age of 18 to have. Of course, older folks might be more likely to have a health crisis or some kind of dementia or some reason that they need the document. But someone who's younger could be in an accident, could have a health crisis himself. And if they don't have this document in place, there's no way that anyone else can handle their affairs for them short of going to the probate court and having a guardian or conservator appointed. And and on this issue, let me mention, because I have uh, kids in college, um, and so that that is an issue. Medical powers of attorney or giving access, you've got your 20-year-old kid who's in a car accident, you know, you're going to want to be able to access and help. That would be both for medical, too. There's a form for that. But also, how are you going to to pay their bills and things when they're away? So kids still need it. Let's talk about some issues. Uh, Sarah, you raised it before about naming an agent. Um, what are the things that you advise people to think about when they're trying to choose who they should appoint as an agent under a power of attorney? I think the two most important things are, and it, it you know, it sounds kind of obvious, but it not it's not always the person who is trustworthy and who has the competency to handle that role. I was talking to a client and she had, you know, we talked about all this and she had named her sister. And then later in the conversation, she said, she's really bad with money though. And I thought, well, that might, no, she's out. That might not be a good idea. So those are, you know, if you kind of boil it down to its most essential elements, I'd say those are two of them. Blake, do you have any uh, I would additional say, thoughts on that? No, I think trust is the priority. I think that, that like, as Craig sort of alluded to, I mean, these are very important and you ought to have one, but, but they can also be very dangerous and they ought to be done very carefully. And, and really, no matter how good or bad the document is, you're still going to be, it's not going to be a good result if you name the wrong person as agent. So, so, so President Reagan said when talking about Gorbachev, trust but verify. And I kind of feel that way about fiduciaries. One of the biggest issues that we're seeing in disputes regarding powers of attorney is that the fiduciary may be taking advantage of the opportunity or not realizing it does things. And it's really very hard to catch till it's later. And I often, after the fact, if we can solve the problem, ask the principal, you know, why'd you choose that person? And and I find talking to the principal and I find talking to the lawyer they didn't talk about it enough in advance, thinking who the right person was mm-hmm. or thinking about what the right controls were. It just, I'm going to name my oldest child. And so I, I, I tell our listeners, give a lot of thought to who's the right person. Do people often name, if they have two children, do they name both children as co-agents? They can. And is that a good idea or a bad idea? It is idea? permitted. It is permitted under the old power of attorney law and under the new power of attorney law. Um, you can also marry your first cousin in South Carolina. I'm not saying you should. Exactly. Um, yeah, we don't necessarily think it's a good idea. People like to bring that up and talk about that a lot. You know, I have two kids. I love them equally and I want them to work together to help me out. It makes sense when you put it that way. But if the power of attorney requires that they act together and one of them disagrees, then they've reached a deadlock. They can't do anything. If there's two agents that can act independently, then one of them can easily usurp the other. Or we might have the same situation where a financial institution does not, as a matter of practice, deal with powers of attorney that name two agents because they don't want to be on the hook. And Blake, are you seeing that? I think if you name two agents and you right now the default is under the new law they can act independently they don't have to act unanimously so you haven't really added a lot in the way of safeguards and then even if they can act independently the default or the the 
tendency on banks or other third parties is going to be we want both of them to sign. So it creates some practical hurdles to, to utilizing the power of attorney when you have co-agents. And, and I'm seeing a lot of times I'm seeing spouse, you know, parent and child together thinking that there'll be kind of checks and balances on each other. You know, I, I'm here to tell everyone out loud, it's not a check and a balance. It's really an encumbrance. It stops you from acting and it makes people want to argue when they don't need to. Do you see a lot of clients uh, who name an attorney or a financial advisor or even a, a corporate fiduciary as an agent under a power of attorney? I'd say of those three, the most common would be an agent. I mean, sorry, the most common would be an attorney. Um, financial advisor, I maybe have seen it once, but very common. Typically, they can't or won't serve. How about accountants? Account. I've seen more accountants than, I think, attorneys. Is that a good idea or a bad idea, in your opinion? Depends on the accountant. <laughs> uh, uh, for the principal or for the, for the accountant agent, slash the attorney? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> right. For you. Um, yeah, we see a lot of that. And I think you asked if professional fiduciaries will serve. Often they won't. And so if someone doesn't have a family member, then they're kind of left without anything, left in the lurch. So they're looking to their professional advisors. Financial advisors typically won't do it. Some attorneys do. Are there um, professional people out there that actually do as a job being a fiduciary, like an administrative, uh, for administrator for courts? Are they serving as powers of attorney or is there, is there not a market out there? There's not a big market for it. I think professional trustees have been unwilling to do it. I don't know exactly why firsthand. I've assumed that it's because the law has been a lot more unclear than trust law on what their duties and obligations would be and what fees they can charge and all of that. So unless a professional fiduciary is also serving as a trustee for that person, that's really about the only um, place I've seen that. Yeah. And I would say we would do it in some circumstances, but where where I work inside Synovus is fairly, I mean, we've got a very low volume. We know our families very deeply, so we would be more willing to do it. But I think, think most institutions rightly won't. What we tell people a lot of times is if you have someone you trust, but they're not good with money, like Sarah said earlier, they're, they're, they're those concerns, you can give the agent a power to create a revocable trust that would that the agent can then terminate. And the revocable trust would allow the trustee to serve as fiduciary. And you could put the assets in there, and then the, the, the trustee of the Rev Trust can handle investments. They can write checks to cover the bills. They can do a lot of those things with the agent sort of overseeing it, not being directly responsible for the investments or for, for paying the bills or for those other things. And that's a little bit of a middle road that, that could be taken. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Millie Bombush from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking with Blake Melton, senior wealth strategist at Synovus Family Asset Management, and Sarah Watchko, a partner at Hill & Watchko. So, so you gave us a segue, uh, Blake. You talked about the new law allows uh, agents under certain circumstances to create a revocable trust on behalf of the principal. So let's kind of go, why does Georgia have a new law in the first place? I think that the short answer is is because we we didn't have much of a law before that. Um, m the statutory law, the, the code regarding powers of attorney was was sparse at best, and and very outdated. And a lot of it was was common law, and not even so much case law, but just what people thought was the case. And so I think a lot of this was wanting to update the law, and then a lot of it in the legislature was driven by concerns about abuse. 
And so, so talk about what some of the legislature's concerns were. And I also know there were some concerns by banks as well. So, so what were some of the concerns? Yeah, I think really people approach or sort of there are three contingencies regarding powers of attorney. They're, they're the planning attorneys and, and the clients that have selected a good agent. And they're frustrated that banks won't accept them as readily as they would like. And then banks are, are wary of accepting them. And, I, you know, I, I think the best way to, to, to explain that is that, you know, when you go and give, give your money to a bank or a financial institution, the fundamental sort of contract or promise is not to have lots of ATMs or have, you know, be able to cash checks with your iPhone or that. It is to not give your money to anybody else. It's to keep your money safe and give it back when you want it. And when someone walks in with a power of attorney, what they're really doing is asking that financial institution to violate the most fundamental promise they've made to their client, which is I won't, I'll keep your money safe and give it back to you. And so banks approach it as, as we're, they're very wary of accepting these things. And then I think probably, Craig, what you and Millie see on the litigation side and what lots of law enforcement and, and elder organizations see is lots of abuse. And so you had people going, we need to cu- cut down the abuse. And you had folks going. When, when you say abuse, t- tell our listeners what you mean by abuse. Well, I really mean, you know, the, the, uh, an agent, whether it's a caregiver or someone else in a position of trust, gets a power of attorney from a principal and then uses that power of attorney not to benefit the principal, but to benefit the agent themselves. And what we heard, I was involved in the legislative process. And what we heard. So if from, we don't like it, we're going to call you. <laughs> well, yeah, lots of people already have. So <laughs> you, can, you can add on, add on to that. Sarah, have you called him yet? Uh, no, <laughs> I wouldn't do such a thing. But what we heard from law enforcement is that somebody calls up and says, hey, you know, so this caregiver's got a, got a power of attorney and they're, they're stealing grandma's money. And law enforcement shows up and the, the agent, the caregiver says, well, I have a power of attorney. And law enforcement, according to what we heard, was very hesitant to get into interpreting that power of attorney and going, yeah, you, yeah, agent, you have a power of attorney, but what you're doing is violates that power of attorney. So what we heard is that under the new sort of fiduciary duties and, and other obligations that the agent was going to have to the principal and with greater clarity, law enforcement would be much more willing to say, yes, caregiver slash agent, you may have a power of attorney, but you have an obligation to use it in the best interest of the principal and these other duties that you are violating, and therefore we can prosecute you criminally. And that was where <clears throat> probably more than anywhere else excuse me, where the impetus in the, in the legislature came and, and what sort of pushed it over the finish line and got it passed. Now, you, you've talked about financial abuse and the, the I think the phrase you used was stealing grandma's money. Uh, Sarah, what kind, specifically, what kinds of things do you see agents do to steal grandma's money? They take it and they use it for themselves. And that can be for small things or large things. But, um, I mean, we've literally seen people wiped out because... Like I described it earlier, they've given someone else a set of keys to the house. So if that person comes in and takes all the furniture, it's gone. Um, it's very hard to get that back after the fact. So, I mean, we've seen cases where it was just kind of a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there, where at the end of the day, that wiped grandmother out. Going so is, is this a, a situation where they're writing checks on grandma's account? Are they using grandma's credit cards? What is, what all is of, happening? All of the above. Okay. And one area that I have seen recently that's creative but remarkably simple is taking money in an account through a power of attorney 
and taking it out of that bank account and opening a new bank account that's a joint uh, uh, account with Rider Survivorship. So you take a large amount of money, you put it in an account ostensibly to benefit the the, the principal, but at the end of the day, you get it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm seeing that a lot more uh, recently than I did in the past. Mm-hmm. I think in my experience, when a agent is appointed and starts moving a lot of money around and setting up new accounts, then there's probably probably someone needs to take a close look because sometimes means danger ahead. So you say somebody needs to take a closer look. So the new act is supposed to help that somebody. Blake, tell us what the new act does that may help us. Well, as I said earlier, it imposes fiduciary duties on the agent, which is is basically a, a duty to use the power of attorney for the principal's benefit and not for the agent's. It clarifies, and I mean, I think some would argue imposes a requirement on the agent to keep records of, of what they've been doing on behalf of the principal. And then it provides a large class of individuals that can petition a court to review the agent's conduct, which I think is a big change. And step back for a second, requires you to maintain records. I can't tell you how many people come in and say, oh, I was supposed to keep receipts. It seems so obvious. Yes. And and people, people don't. Even a lot of times people that are doing nothing wrong. I mean, it's, they're not professional fiduciaries. They're, they're people that are doing this at night on the weekends for, for, you know, family members. And yeah, they, a lot of times the records are, are not not very comprehensive if they exist at all. And, and by the way, I think the, the act itself does a decent job of telling you you have to. Yes. Okay, now, now go back and I interrupted you. Tell us how there are other people that can enforce that didn't exist before. Yes, and that would be, it, it's a long list of, of folks and I won't recite the list. And then it ends with really anyone who has an interest in the principal's welfare, which is sort of the, the catch-all. So really virtually anyone that, that you, you would think ought to be able to petition the court to say, hey, court, we want you to look at what the agent's doing and make sure it's okay to a large extent they can. So that, that could include a, a grandchild, a niece or nephew, maybe the you know, best friend who lives next door who suddenly has concerns. This could really encompass almost anyone. Yes, that's my reading of it. And, and, and that, that's a big deal because in the past, the, there was really only two people who could monitor or, or if they weren't monitoring, complain. It could be the principal who may lack capacity or they're being duped in some way, or somebody could come in and ask for a conservator or guardian to come in, but you didn't have a lot of evidence. Now, there's, at least you can ask. That's a really big change. Yes. I mean, it is. I think it's one of the key provisions of the new act as far as, as abuse goes. How does how does somebody else know that something's going wrong? I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't know a lot of thieves personally, notwithstanding children who took a dollar or two here or there from my uh, change uh, purse. But but how do you know they're stealing? Sarah, go ahead. <laughs> well, often they don't until something happens that makes them aware. Um, I mean, in my experience, in my practice, it's often when the money's gone or there's been a health crisis. Something has happened in this family situation to get someone to come in and start looking at what's going on. So everything's going along on the status quo and this child has been taking care of mom and okay, fine. But then mom has a fall and everyone kind of swoops in and starts sitting down and trying to figure out what's going on in the family and then kind of accidentally stumbles upon something going wrong. Does, does the act have anything? And I'm going to give a leading question. Yes, yeah, I I'm think I know lawyer. where you're going with does this. It have yeah. the, does it have a new provision that says you can do an accounting or you can tell somebody what's going on and impose that obligation or is that 
Am I misunderstanding it? No, I think you would be allowed to do that. And, and, and under the act, the, the class of person that can request records from the agent is fairly limited. And the, the rationale behind that is, well, the people that can petition for judicial review is so large that we, it was okay to keep the class of people that could request records. Who, who, who is that class? Oh, you're catching me. It is the principal, like they're perhaps their executor. I, I would have to go okay, back and look, but it is, yes, it is. It, when you read it, you, I think most people will find it surprisingly small. And that's one of the areas that I think we suggest departing from the act a little bit. So that if, if I was, again, if I was the power, the agent for my father, the, the power of attorney might require that annually I submit some sort of, you know, statement or, or, or records to my two siblings or, or something along those lines, because otherwise they would have to come in and, and ask for them. And by the way, as a litigator, uh, you know, the whole idea of we have open records and all in the, is sunshine, that if somebody else knows, it at least discourages bad acts. And a lot of the stealing or the mis- malfeasance that we're seeing is it wasn't really started off intentionally. You can rationalize, and then yeah. it kind of snowballs. So sometimes just telling, right? Well, now, and to, to continue with that example, to I me, mean, like I've, I'm the oldest, and so I, we have two children that are that are in private school. And my siblings don't, and so you know, well, well, maybe my parents would like to pay for private school, and you know, that's something that's not stealing. But if they were incapacitated, and that's something that, that lots of grandparents do. Do you want us to able. call up your parents to listen <laughs> while we're talking? Yeah, suggestion. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I think that's that's an example of, of somewhere where you can start down the slippery slope. And it's very not- easy for agents to say that and to convince themselves of that and to really feel that, to say, well, I really think dad would have wanted to do this. Um, and, and what we see a lot, too, is that the person who maybe is holding the power of attorney may also be the person who holds the health care power, maybe the child who lives nearby and who ends up going over and helping dad. And that person will convince himself or herself that dad would want to reimburse me because I'm spending way more time than my siblings. So dad would want to pay for this dinner out. And the next thing you know, dad would want to pay for me to go on vacation. Um, and then dad would want to buy me a new house. Um, it just goes from there. It's always redecorating the master bath. Mm-hmm. That's what we're saying. So you, you mentioned something. So you, you could do an accounting and probably have a little sunshine there. And Millie mentioned that, you know, I deserve to be paid. Do powers of attorney get paid? Do agents get paid? Not by default, no. Um, and the new statute says that. Now, you can you can draft around that. You can put that provision in your power of attorney and allow for an agent to get paid. Um, the agent is entitled to reimbursements um, for expenses made on behalf of the principal, but it's limited to that. What is y'all's recommendation as to compensating an agent? Uh, yeah, I would not. Absent some sort of extraordinary circumstance. We don't do it. And it, I think the terms would need to be spelled out very clearly. So you're worried about abuse. Absolutely. So, you, you, uh, Blake, you had mentioned one of you know, the kind of three reasons why the act came about. And one of them was to make them more acceptable to banks and to financial institutions. What does the act do that makes it more acceptable? That's a good question. I think, and I've probably been guilty of this at times, is people talk about sort of the acceptance requirement, like, like banks are required to accept. And, and what, what the, it, it's, it's not a requirement. What the, the act really does is it says if the bank doesn't accept it, and, and there's some rules about when it's reasonable to, when the bank has to, or is supposed to, probably is a better way to put it, is supposed to accept it versus not. If they're supposed to accept it and they don't, 
then the bank can be held liable for attorney's fees and cost for an action or proceeding to enforce the power of attorney. Um, and again, that's you, you, you're generally not going to want it to get to the point of an action or proceeding. My reading, that doesn't include angry letters and phone calls and that sort of thing from, from the, I guess, agent or principal's attorney to the bank. But that, that's what the requirement is. And it's also coupled with sort of with a reliance provision that says if the bank in, had good faith and no actual knowledge that the power of attorney had been revoked or that sort of thing, then the bank's not liable. So, it, so, it, so what lawyers refer to as a safe harbor. Yes. So the, the two things it does really is it says, all right, you know, bank or other financialists, other third party, you're not liable except for sort of bad faith or, or actual knowledge that something's wrong. And then if you refuse to accept it, and somebody has to sort of institute an action or proceeding to force you to accept it, then you, then the bank or other third parties held liable for attorney's fees and cost. I, I just want to clarify, is that true of all powers of attorney, or is that just true of the power of attorney that is drafted, you know, in, in conformity with the, the statute, the new statute Since that we've July got? July 1st, 2017, to be exact. Yes, that it is. The, right now, under Georgia law, the power of attorney has to be substantially or substantially reflect the language of the statutory form. And there's actually a form power of attorney meant to be filled out that's in the code. And if it substantially reflects the language of that statutory form, then it is entitled to those sort of reliance and acceptance provisions. And hopefully there's discussion underway to try to more clearly define what that means. It will be easier for drafting attorneys. What would substantially conform? Ex- yes. So it's clear that the people preparing powers of attorney know what they have to do to meet that and that an institution or other third party looking at it knows whether or not that, that criteria has been met. So Sarah, so, let me ask me. So you, you ask you, so it's been almost four months to the day since the act went into effect. Are you seeing banks and financial institutions being more receptive to the new powers of attorney, or is it the same old, same old? I've only had one experience so far, and it was kind of funny because the bank asked. Um, so, part of the process for submitting a power of attorney to the bank or financial institution, if you want to rely on this new law, is that they can request um, an agent's certification that the document's valid or the opinion of an attorney that it's valid and in force or an English translation if that's applicable. So I had a client who submitted an old power of attorney that was executed prior to the new law, and they requested under the new statute an attorney's opinion that it was in compliance with the new statute. It's like they know it's out there, but the application of it was confused because the law says that a power of attorney that was signed before July 1st, 2017, um, it falls under the old power of attorney law. So it's like the bank missed that step. So are you recommending then that your clients, everybody rush to the attorney's office, rush to your office specifically, and get get new powers of attorney? Our approach was more like to inform them, here's a new power of attorney statute. What you have in place is still valid, but there are some added protections for you in this statute. There's a, you know, we hope that it is effective in financial institutions accepting the document. So if you want to be protected by this, then it might be a good idea to come in and talk to us about it. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Millie Bombush from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslodge Frankel. We are talking with Blake Melton, 
a senior wealth strategist with Sonova's Family Asset Management, and Sarah Wachko, a partner with the law firm of Hill and Wachko. What else, what other changes are there in the new, um, the new uh, statute with regard to the, the powers of an agent? The act has very comprehensive listing of, of all the acts an agent can do. And then it divides sort of the areas of authority into, into two groups. And one of those groups are, are sort of the default powers almost. And that would be sort of, you know, being able to deal with real estate, stocks and bonds, bank accounts, all those things that you traditionally think of an agent being able to do. And then from that, it separates out what are commonly known as hot powers. And the the concept is, is that those are powers... Because they're good looking? <laughs> I, no, no, I do not believe so. They're powers that the act deemed highly susceptible to abuse. They're things like the power to make a gift, the power to change someone's beneficiary designation on a 401k or IRA or things like that. And in order for the agent to be able to do those, the principal has to specifically grant those powers. They're not included in sort of the the broad. And, and even if they're granted, there's still sometimes limitations. Yes. For example, the gift has a, a dollar limitation that, that next year will be $15,000 a year. It's tied to some federal tax law. So yes, there are, even, even on those, some limitations. And I want to highlight for our listeners, the, the gifting and the transfers and the changes of designations, they're, they're hot powers for a reason. These are what are abused. And so look at these carefully when you're doing your power of attorney, powers of attorney and look at the the limitations in them. And, and remember, you can make more limitations, but these are the most abused. Yes. And they need to be individualized. And then sorry, Sarah, go ahead. That's okay. I was just going to mention, I think another firm in town has referred to them as the BO powers or benefit others powers, which I liked because each one of these can be used to benefit um, the agent or someone else other than the principal directly. So you can see how they could easily be abused. And, and, I'll, and I'll mention on the other side, when you're doing elder, elder law, elder planning, and you're doing um, Medicaid planning and Medicare planning, the ability to make transfers is important. It can be very important. I do a lot of that kind of planning in my practice. And these are typically families with very little in the way of net worth. There's a little bit of money that it's really important to protect. And sometimes the only way to protect that is making transfers. But you obviously have this tug of war because if you allow that power, then it can very easily be abused. Can, can you say that? And I, I know that someone naive. Can you say you can only have limited gifting powers, but if somebody signs off or if it's for Medicaid planning or something like that, can you actually say that and still succeed? You can say that. Yeah, you can put that in the document. You can put other parameters. You can say that it has to be, you know, if you're going to transfer my assets to a trust that's not for my benefit, well, the terms of that trust at my death have to be exactly the same as what I put in my will. Or you can limit it so that if you make gifts to children, it has to be equally to every child, whatever um, limitations you can think of there so that the agent can't undo your estate plan. And are these restrictions already in the form or is these things that a lawyer would need to advise you on? These are things that a lawyer would need to advise you on. It's not typically something that you'll find in a standard power of attorney form. So we've got a statutory standard form but it can be personalized to meet an individual's needs. It can. The biggest challenge at this point is that if we want to avail ourselves of the protections in the statute for getting accepted, it needs to be substantially similar 
to the statutory form, but we want to be able to tweak it to, you know, meet the expectations of all of our different types of clients. So we're trying to balance how much we can really safely add in there while still being substantially similar enough. I had some clients come in one time and they had downloaded a power of attorney form and they wanted to do something on behalf of the principal. And I said, well, this form doesn't give you the power to do that. And they were shocked. They thought it was just a power of attorney. I thought you just get a power of attorney and it's a power of attorney. And and the whole, no, these words mean something that are in this document and it can be tailored to all different kinds of things was kind of lost. So I think that's important for folks to understand. And, 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 and on that issue, I want to kind of warn our listeners and think about it. Powers of attorney used to be routinely signed and they gave you every single power and they were relatively inexpensive, and arguably you can use a form. Now, in order to do it in a way the Georgia law allows you to do it to protect, to both get the benefits of a power of attorney and to also protect you from potential problems, it's going to take longer, which both means you need a lawyer probably, but you may have to spend a little more money. Um, and, I, and I think that's both a concern, a benefit and a concern of the new statute. I think that's right. And, and on a lot of issues on the new statute, I'd remind people that it's, it's based on the, the Uniform Law Commission sort of uniform power of attorney that statute that's meant to be adopted by all the states. It's been adopted by over 20 states, and it's been adopted by Alabama, North Carolina, and South Carolina. And, and you know, you, you, whether you're talking about banks or individuals, like it, it hadn't caused tremendous problems there. I mean, people have adapted to it. And then I think it, it's largely been, or at least on balance, beneficial. Let's ask that question. Does a, a power of attorney adopted in Georgia pursuant to the act, my client moves or my dad moves to California, God forbid, or to Alabama or something, is it still valid? It, if the the jurisdiction to which your dad is moving has the Uniform Act or provision similar to it, then yes. And if not, then you might need to be thinking about it. Yes, then you need to look at it. And let's let's talk about something um, very specific too about now signing the new powers of attorney. There are new requirements for signing, isn't that right? I've had this they? be an issue already. <laughs> that was quick. Yes. Yeah, so as far as executing the power of attorney, the principal has to sign or someone can sign at their direction in their presence. Principal has to sign in the presence of at least one witness in a notary public. Everyone has to be in everyone else's presence. So I had a situation recently where they attempted this, but the notary didn't actually sign, just put a stamp and then left. And so I said, nope, everyone's got to get back together. You all got to sign it. You got to start over. But the notary part is new, is it not? It is. If I remember correctly, I think the old statute was whatever transaction you were engaging in with the power of attorney, the power of attorney had to be executed in compliance with that. So it was kind of fuzzy. Which, as I understand, meant that if you wanted to be able to transfer real estate, you had to have a notary. Otherwise, you didn't. Yeah. And then lots of people messed up. Yeah. Right. And that was part of the the reason it's it's in the new act is twofold. One, it's it's a little bit of helping people help themselves. Like you, you ought to do it because then you can't deal with real estate if you if you have not had the power of attorney notarized. And also it dovetailed with a lot of the concerns about abuse in that it was a, it was a little bit more formality required to, to execute a power of attorney. Makes it feel more like a will. Yes. So it, it was – and granted, now how much that will actually have an impact, who knows? But there, there, it, it, did, like, it did dovetail with the idea of we want to prevent abuse and make these things a little bit harder to execute. And having a power of attorney used to transfer real estate brings up one other question. I, I think under the new law – in that transaction, you have to have the original power of attorney. Is that right? That's correct. 
But if you just go to a bank, try to use this power of attorney for anything else, you can now use a copy. Well, if, you, right. if you have to have the original, what if you gave the original to somebody else or you've lost the original? What happens? Is there a mechanism to kind of get a duplicate copy or something? I'm not sure that you could execute a real estate transaction without it. No, they, they need to call you. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. The, the, Anything it, it else? Is, okay. So what you're, what I hear you saying, and I'm reading into it, is always execute more than one. Yes. And have somebody don't give away your last original. Yes. Is that what we're hearing? Yes. You could preemptively record the original as well. Right. Okay, now let's talk about that. There's also a recording provision, isn't there, where you could give somebody, and you tell us what that means, so somebody like a court can hold the original. That's kind of new too, isn't it? It's a little unusual. It, it was, and I think it was a very well-intended provision, and I think one that, that makes a lot of sense on its face. And, and what it, the law says right now is you do not have to record on the front end at all. But in order to revoke a power of attorney, you need to send a certified letter to the agent and then file that certified letter uh, with the clerk of superior court. In practice, does that work so far? No, getting back to, you know, sort of my example of my dad, if, if, you know, if my mom is my dad's agent right now, they say, you know, son, we, we, we think you're starting to get a little responsible and we, we, want, we want you to be agent. So it says that my father has to send a certified letter to my mother at, at their joint residence and then go down to the Muscogee County Superior Court and file that letter. And that has caused a lot of consternation among the planning community saying people are not going to want to do that. And I think it was, was well-intentioned to help prevent abuse and do other things, but not necessarily that workable in practice. And hopefully that will get changed in the upcoming legislative session. What about but, filing it originally? Is, 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 is there an option to say, you know, I don't, I'm worried about who holds the original. I'm worried it'll get lost. I want to make sure everyone can see it. Can I file it so a bank or whomever could go down and say, yeah, there it is. There's the date. Is there a mechanism for that? I, I, there's nothing in the act that contemplates that, but I don't think it would prevent you from doing it. But the, the, in the, in the, and people have talked about registries. The problem with that is, is it's in conflict with what the bank has an obligation to do. All the bank has to do is as long as they're accepting in good faith and without actual knowledge, they're protected. It's conflicting to, to have a registry that people could go check, but then tell third parties they don't have to check the registry. So I think the registry has appeal on its face, but I think for sort of a long list of reasons, it, the, it was going to do more harm than good, or it wasn't going to be beneficial enough to justify the, the trouble. And one and last... Under, under the prior statute, um, to revoke a power of attorney, you pretty much just had to say, you could execute a new one that says, I hereby am executing this one and revoking all others. Mm -hmm. But there was no affirmative requirement that you tell the former agent. Um, and we've had cases where the former agent simply didn't know. Yeah. I mean, two years later, yeah. they still engaging in some transactions on behalf of a parent because the sibling who got the new POA just never told them. Well, and the act doesn't, I mean, if you remove that requirement, it would not prevent you from sending a certified letter or prevent you from filing in superior court. It would mm -hmm. just allow individuals to say, there may be a risk here, I ought to go do it. Or they, uh, individuals will be able to say there, there's no need in this situation. We, do, we don't need to go to, to that extent. So, so we're do getting towards the end of the show. So I'm going to ask each of you a slightly different question. So, Blake, if you would tell our listeners 
a your your experience where using a power of attorney was really amazing and helped your clients so well that couldn't have been done if they just hadn't done a power of attorney whatever 10 20 years ago so that that worked well where the power of attorney came at yet we've i mean a lot of what i do is related to tax planning which is not what a majority of the population has to deal with but in 2010 and 2011 and 2012 when the, the estate tax went away briefly and, and the, all this stuff was changing. We, we had clients and we did a lot of transactions under powers using powers of attorney that, that were very beneficial. So if the Trump tax act passes and becomes effective January 1, 2018, powers of attorney may be helpful to some of your clients. It, exactly. And I would say, yeah, that's probably a better way to put it. Whether it's tax law or whether it's other changing legal circumstances, if someone's incapacitated, th- then they lack the ability to, to adapt, um, you know, whatever, whatever the planning relates to, that they can adapt. Okay, Sarah, I'm going to ask you the opposite question. I Do you have an example? Well, I did warn you. <laughs> Tell me where the power of attorney that you've seen, it may not have been your own, where you've seen not. the the where it's been abused. Abused, sure. Unfortunately, we've seen it a number of times, but I'm thinking of a really sweet older man who was a client years ago and he never married. He had no children. His only real relative was a half sister who was much younger and lived out of state. No one was really looking. No one was really looking out for him. He named a son of a family friend as agent. As our client's capacity continued to diminish, um, the agent would just go to the grocery store, go to the bar, buy himself some drinks, buy food, buy drinks for his friends. He opened an E-Trade account, moved some money over there. He thought buying and selling stocks was fun. He just was kind of playing around and using the money for his own benefit. Um, and it went on. It went on for, um, for, I don't know, six, 12 months before. Luckily, another friend thought something might be going on here. Let's go talk to a lawyer. And luckily, we're able to take steps to protect him. And Craig, real quick, I think we've we've mentioned guardianship a couple of times, and I think it, it may be important to explain to people if you don't have, we've talked a lot about all the potential for abuse and how you need to get these things tailored to your individual situations. And no, no, no. I think so the question is, well, this sounds like a lot of trouble and risk, and like, why should I bother? And it's if you don't have a power of attorney, and, and you you become incapacitated or something, you're really going to a guardianship proceeding. And Millie, who is my partner who handles a lot of these, tell our audience how easy that is. <laughs> I don't think we have enough time left for me to explain how easy that is. It's a long and complicated process. Um, and I would say, you know, from start to finish, it could, at, at best, it could take three to four months. But I've had guardianship proceedings that have gone on for almost 18 months and while we've waited is- from... From the time that we determined that there was a need that no one could handle the finances for this person, it might take 18 months for that to get resolved. And you can imagine what happens in the meantime. And powers of attorney, if done right, can be used immediately. And that's their advantage. It makes and they, it a lot simpler. Yes. And they prevent having to do the guardianship. I mean, when you read, I mean, academics will kind of talk about transaction cost and, and that all the, the potential abuse and these other issues are sort of the price you pay to be able to avoid Guardianship. It's a difficult thing. So we're, we're wrapping up our show. And as we do, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Before I give kind of the final words, Blake, if somebody wanted to contact you, where would they go? They can email me at Blake Melton. It's M-E-L-T-O-N at synovus.com. 
That's S-Y-N-O-V-U-S. And Sarah? My email address is swatchko, that's W-A-T-C-H-K-O, at estatelawga.com. And for information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Blake Melton, Senior Wealth Strategist with Sonovas Family Asset Management, and Sarah Watchko, a partner with Bill and Watchko. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 830 here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.